Hi, my name is Melissa Urban, and you're listening to Do The Thing, a podcast where we explore what's been missing every time you've tried to make a change and make it stick. Today, my guest is Holly Whitaker, creator of Tempest, a digital platform for the treatment and support of alcohol misusers, those who feel their drinking is problematic but aren't alcoholics. She believes recovery isn't about discipline, willpower, or even abstaining, but building a life you don't want to escape from. Today, we'll discuss her own experience with alcohol and recovery, the problems with how drinking is portrayed in the media and pop culture, my own I'm not drinking right now experiment, and how you can explore your relationship with alcohol without judgment or shame. My own relationship with alcohol is complicated, as I'm sure many of you could say. I am a recovering drug addict. I've been in recovery for 19 years, but my recovery does include drinking alcohol socially. I know this isn't typical, but that was a decision made in conjunction with my therapist, who I saw for the better part of 10 years, and my alcohol use has never been problematic. I have never identified as a misuser. I've also given up alcohol for large periods of time due to a health initiative like prepping to run a triathlon or for months at a time during my Whole30 experiments. In September 2018, I decided to explore my relationship with alcohol once again, due in large part to the influence of people I had been following on Instagram like Holly, Mary Beth LaRue, Danica Breisha, Laura McCown, and Tell Better Stories. So for the month of September, I decided... I'm not drinking right now. And I adopted that phrase specifically because I wasn't quite ready to say I'm never drinking again, but I really did want to explore what life would be like without alcohol in the equation. Over the course of the next six or seven months, I shared what not drinking looked like for me and how I handled social situations and all of the blessings that I felt came into my life specifically because I wasn't drinking. These posts were some of the most commented and messaged and discussed posts I have ever shared. You responded so strongly to this idea of, I'm not drinking right now. And I think it's because more now than ever, so many of you are sober curious. You are exploring your relationship with alcohol. You are trying to imagine what your life could look like without it. Now, this episode isn't about vilifying alcohol. We're not saying nobody should ever drink ever again, and we're not saying there's something wrong with you if you choose to drink. But if the very idea of me saying, hey, maybe once in a while you should examine your relationship with alcohol makes you angry or defensive, that kind of tells you something, doesn't it? If this feels like a thing for you, remember looking at the thing is the very first step and often the hardest. You have that opportunity right now here with us. So whether your thing is looking more closely at the role alcohol plays in your life, cementing your own sobriety, or maybe kicking off your own I'm not drinking right now experiment, take a deep breath and join us with an open mind. Holly Whitaker, pronouns she, her, is the founder and CEO of Tempest, formerly Hip Sobriety. In 2012, she was determined to deal with her problem drinking, but found that the recovery program she needed didn't exist. Taking years of experience in healthcare and health tech, 
she created a comprehensive digital platform for the treatment and support of alcohol misusers. Today, Tempest has served thousands of individuals on their path to recovery through their programs, educational courses, and media. Holly is a writer and the author of the soon-to-be-published book, Quit Like a Woman. She writes regularly for her own blog, Hip Sobriety, and the media site she founded, The Temper. Holly, welcome to Do The Thing. I am so excited to talk to you today. I am really excited to talk to you. I've been following you for a long time, and I feel like I know you, even though we've never met in real life. (laughs) We've tried to meet up a few times, but we're both so good about like holding our boundaries and self-care that, you know, it's like, hey, are you still up for, you know, a a tea or a coffee? And you're like, nope, I sure can't. I can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. And what was really sweet was the last time you offered to come over to my apartment and take care of me. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I would have. I would have brought you some bone broth. I know. You're wonderful. So at the top of every podcast, I ask everyone, Holly, what's your thing? Uh, My thing is addiction, is to put it as simply as possible. I think that uh, it's a place that I could have easily moved through and left. And it's a place I decided to stay. So it's, it's really the addiction space. Yeah, we're really grateful that you're here. Tell us a little bit about your background with drinking and then later with cigarettes and pot. I started drinking, smoking pot and smoking cigarettes when uh, I was 15. And I would say that it always felt, um, it was never really love. It was never like, oh, this is, I mean, I might say that about pot, actually. I feel like pot was a pretty big love story. But I think when, you know, when it, when it came to alcohol and it never felt like this, like, best friend, it always felt like something that was terrifying and something that was hard to manage, I would say, from the beginning and not in such a way that I don't believe in that I was an alcoholic my whole life. And then my first drink, I, you know, I don't believe that was the case. I I think I had a very traumatic childhood and that I found coping mechanisms that worked. I had this experience with my drug addiction where I also came from a background of trauma. And in the beginning, I used the drugs simply to numb and cope with the trauma. But then the drugs became a problem in and of themselves. And now I have these like layers of problems. Was it like that with you with your drinking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like the way that, you know, the way that I look at addiction is through the lens of the biopsychosocial model, which just basically says we all have these all these vulnerabilities that we accumulate or that we're born with. And then we reach outside of ourselves to manage that. And then the thing we use to manage that then adds on, it it goes back into the vulnerabilities and it amplifies them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I had stuff, I used it to escape and then the escape became the problem. Yes. More so than the the first things. And then in 2012, you believed your drinking was problematic and you knew you wanted to do something about it and you researched recovery options and didn't find anything that you felt like you needed. Yeah. I, well, I worked in, I worked at a healthcare company and, and I, um, I mean, it's just really funny cause you can look, I can look back at it and I always just thought, well, I'm going to outgrow this or I'm going to fix this by continuing by doing a cleanse or by, you know, like I just was trying to not end up in, um, where, where I was headed. And I, it came to a head in 2012 and I was just doing things that were terrifying. And I went and I talked to a friend who was a healthcare provider and I was also bulimic. I was, it was pretty severely bulimic at the time. And I, I had, 
uh, I mean, I, I started taking diet pills when I was 11. And so I'd always had this like eating disorder piece to it. And I was, I was bulimic for 17 years. And then I went and talked to one of my friends who was a doctor and I was just I explained the alcohol, but not as, as specifically, I, would, I didn't go to, at, you know, into the depths of what it looked like. But I said, I feel like I have a problem with alcohol and I feel like I have a problem with bulimia. And, um, you know, my options were AA and, an outpatient or even an inpatient and the stuff that I was, you know, it was just none of it. It was all a non-starter. It was all impossible. I didn't identify as an alcoholic. I didn't, you know, that was too much for me to, it was too big of a threshold to cross. And while I would have happily gone to rehab, um, I couldn't leave my job nor could I afford it. And so it was like, it was almost six figures in debt and I was just, it was, it felt impossible. And, and I, I wouldn't have really, (laughs) I don't know how much longer it would have held up out on the alcohol thing, but I, uh, I mean, my behavior was just, uh, like I said, it was terrifying. I just couldn't trust myself. And I was babysitting for a friend, another doctor friend, and uh, he and I just happened to catch each other on the way home from work to his house and had this long conversation about somebody that had borderline personality disorder. And as soon as I heard those words, I was, I saw myself in it. And uh, I researched borderline personality disorder in the online quiz <laughs> Um, like I was eight out of nine, um, as, uh, indicating that I had borderline personality disorder, which I later was confirmed as not having. Um, but I, that to me, researching that it identified so closely with it. And one of the things it said was stop drinking. And that was my in, it was that, oh, okay, I've got a mental, I, I have, I have a, I have a mental illness and there, and, and this is what something I need to do to treat my mental illness versus I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. yeah. Alcoholic, I couldn't stomach the other. I could. When I went through recovery in the late nineties, and when you in two thousand twelve, there weren't a lot of options to us. It was you had to mm-hmm. identify as an addict or an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You had to hit a bottom. Mm-hmm. You had to admit that you were powerless, mm-hmm. and you had to like white knuckle your way through the twelve steps in order mm-hmm. every single day for the rest of your life to stay clean. There wasn't another alternative. Mm-hmm. So for someone like you, who didn't identify as an alcoholic and maybe didn't have this like one moment of bottom. Mm-hmm. You had to go out and find your other avenue to say, this is why I need to stop drinking. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And I think that by having that, by actually having this different, uh, this different way in, I think it also gave me the ability to search for different options. Yeah. There was smart recovery, you know, and there were recovery meetings at the Zen Center and, you know, those were 12 step based and there were, you know, there were things and pieces, but there largely was not other routes. I did go to AA. I did attend meetings from when I I finally stopped drinking in April of 2013 and I did go to meetings for the first few months and that had a a very big place in my journey. It wasn't my program, but I want to underscore it absolutely had a place in my journey for both the good and the bad. In your own exploration, and when you did stop drinking, you then realized that there was a huge need for people who felt like you, who didn't identify as alcoholic. But, you know, I read a statistic that you have shared that like 90% of the people who are problem drinkers don't self-report or are not diagnosed as alcoholics. 90% of people are just misusers. They they have a problem with alcohol. So if all of our recovery efforts are focused on alcoholics, you are missing a huge amount of the Mm -hmm. population who has a problem and might want to get better, but don't have the avenue or the resources or the education that you did to like find it. So you created it essentially. That's right. And the the privilege, the privilege. And that study came out uh, in probably 2014. It was conducted by the CDC. It it basically says like the 70% of Americans drink 30% of those that do drink are binge drinkers. And then another 30% are problem drinkers. 
This is really important because even if like there's a, you know, this $35 billion rehab industry, this only serves a, a, a fraction of people that are on the end spectrum. It doesn't even fully address the people that absolutely 100% need it. And then the other part of it is it's just, there's no prevention. It's like waiting to treat a heart problem until after the heart attack or, you know, it's just, it's very backwards. It is backwards. And since that study came out, there's been even more research about how problematic drinking has become, particularly for women. Can you tell us a little bit about why we as women are so vulnerable? There's a couple things that are here. One is that we are in this state of really only viewing a certain percentage of the population as not being able to imbibe the alcoholic population. And the rest of us are supposed to be just okay, normal, right? And you like only alcoholics don't drink. Everyone else should be able like to manage it. So I think like this is not specifically to women, but I think this is like writ large what happens to all of us is that we are kind of focused on this one thing instead of really just being able to observe our own our personal relationship with it. And I think there's just these other pieces of it too, which is when like women are considered or were considered, you know, just like this emerging market, this untapped market of drinkers. And we've been, you know, at the other end, at the receiving end of, of all of this imagery and all of this, this push to drink. And, and it shows up in like feminist whiskey, like Jane Walker. Um, it shows up in rosé all day. We are the targets of a huge marketing campaign. And also we're, we are the marketers ourselves. We are consistently posting and reposting alcohol as this like antidote mm-hmm. to life. Um, you know, it's how we mother. It's like, you know, there's all of this like rhetoric around kids make us drink. And we've been really impressed this message that alcohol is necessary in order to mother, in order to be happy, to socialize to to have sex to to do anything like alcohol is this like almost accessory and it's really specifically been targeted towards women and at the same time this is paralleling you know like the pressures of being a woman in today's world it's, you know trying to fit ourselves into this this I can do everything and I can do it perfectly model that um you know that that's yeah. being fed to us it's remarkable once I became aware of the narrative of alcohol in our culture especially once I became a mom it was impossible not to see mm-hmm. right it was like the you know the mommy yeah. sippy cup that's a giant wine glass and the you know I drink because my kids cry and and I thought about yeah. if like there was an advertisement targeted at dads saying wife nagging you, having a tough day with the kids, grab a bottle of whiskey, we would all be up in arms. And like you said, we kind of adopt it as our own and we joke about it. But now that I see it, I see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it it makes you feel if you are drinking and are having problems with your drinking, that there's just something wrong with you. That's right. Because if you're not an alcoholic, you should, I don't understand why you can't handle this, why you can't drink socially or drink as much as your neighbors do or drink as much as the media says you should be able to That's right. and feel in control. That's right. And we're all enemy people and we don't talk about it. I think it's like one of these things you don't just walk up to your group of friends and say, yeah, I feel like I have a problem with alcohol. Um, like the same way you might say, yeah, I really need to cut out gluten. There's no normalized conversation around, wow, I really feel like I'm having a problem with alcohol. Because the second that you say that, then you're basically like catapulted into the other category. That's, you know, potentially alcoholism versus it's just, you know, 
asking the other question, which is, is it normal for us to be ingesting ethanol regularly? Should we be tolerating it with such ease? You know, and, and it's just that conversation hasn't really caught on yet. I mean, alcohol is the only drug in which we have to defend the fact that we're not using it, right? right. If somebody offers me like a cigarette, I don't think twice and say, no, I don't smoke. <laughs> right. In my own, I'm not drinking experiment. Like it's been really eye-opening to see how people react to the idea that I'm in a social setting and I don't have a glass of wine in my hand. It's been fascinating. Why do you think people now are more willing, I think, than ever to look at their relationship with alcohol and make changes based on that? I think there's just that natural progression of we're, we're questioning of every single thing we put into our bodies. And but I think at some point it's just kind of being like able to say, well, that's, you know, that, that doesn't fit. There was a huge push for like dry January um, and, and sober curiosity. And I think that just for, for years, there's been brewing this sentiment around questioning or alcohol centric culture. And I think it finally is just coming to fruition here. And I also think it's just our, our consciousness is rising. Like we, um, we are aware of the ways, uh, the things that hold us back. We're more willing to look at the things that hold us back. We're more willing to understand like, that we have to make sacrifices in order to live more fully and more freely. Because there are so many people now who are willing to step up, like social media is both a blessing and a curse. But yes. I'm now seeing people like you and so people I admire and celebrities coming forward and saying, I'm not drinking. Anne Hathaway is like, right. I'm not drinking until my kid's 18 because right. I don't ever want you know my child to see me hungover or drunk. Right. Um, and I think right. that, sh I think sets a really great example. But I also think a huge part of it is the fact that we are now opening up this discussion outside of traditional recovery. So yeah. you talk about recovery very differently than the way I learned it, which was 100% abstinence. I'm completely mm -hmm. powerless over my powerless. disease. Your idea of recovery is that recovery isn't about abstaining. It's about building a life you don't want to escape from. Tell us more right. about what recovery looks like for you and for the people who go through your course. Yeah, I think that there, the way that I have, I have thought about it, especially with the population I work with. So I particularly, I work with women, I work with LGBTQIA community. We are also, I mean, we, we have a huge push to be able to envelope anybody that is uh, people of color, anybody that's more hard hit by alcohol and alcohol addiction um, and where there is nothing designed for them. One of the most important things to understand is that when you take like a woman or any other historically oppressed individual and you try and run them through something that was designed in the 1930s in order to really truly break down your ego. It is to break down this like idea of an overly like egoic, narcissistic, um, powerful person that thinks they're God. And um, when you take those things and you take this idea of just work it, just show up, you know, shut up and listen, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, do what they say, become humble, um, <laughs> forgive, you know, apologize to everyone. When you kind of impress this like idea of powerlessness, on a group of people, and specifically, I'm talking about the populations I work with, um, who come power, who come feeling powerlessness or powerless, you end up, you know, basically impressing upon them the same things that made them sick. We're all very, very different. Our needs are very, very different. And so, my program, Tempest, you know, our sobriety school, is really built around giving the individual a place to start. The way that that my program works is, first of all, by just reminding people a people that feel that they are not powerful, a people that feel that they have no agency, a people that feel they have no right to say no, that you know, that their actions are shameful, that they're unlovable, is to start from this very basic idea of acceptance of like you are so loved and you are so perfect. 
Um, we are going to make really big things happen. You can have anything you want. You show up and you show up only for yourself. You learn to listen to yourself. You learn to ask for what you need. The goal is to keep showing up. Even when you don't feel like showing up, there is the stuff that you know hurt you in the beginning that you needed to escape from. And then the drug becomes the painful thing. And so we look at you know really all the root stuff and the cycle of addiction. We teach people, we give them tools and we let them come to their own decisions. We don't tell them one specific way is right or one specific way is wrong. I honor the fact that anybody that shows up has showed up on their mm -hmm. own volition and they can be trusted to make the right decisions for themselves. We have like such an idea that people that suffer with addiction can't be trusted, can't be trusted with themselves. Or we really embrace this idea of like the opposite of that, which is that you're perfect and you're trying and you're working and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to keep moving from those mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And all I could go on and on, but yeah. truly what we do is equip people to build a individualized path of recovery within frameworks that work using evidence-based practices. In the last nine months, I started this I I'm not drinking right now experiment. I think yeah. when I thought about not drinking for a while, because I've definitely gone periods where I haven't drank at all, and I never identified yeah. as a misuser, but in this period of not drinking, in the beginning, I thought about what I how I might benefit. Um, alcohol affects my sleep, so maybe I'll sleep better. Alcohol affects blood sugar mm -hmm. regulation. Maybe my blood sugar will be better regulated. These are the things people think about when they think about not drinking. What I discovered mm -hmm. about the way my life could look free from alcohol astounded mm -hmm. me. There wasn't a <laughs> single area of my life that it didn't have a positive impact on. Everything from... Mm -hmm. You know, during my book tour, I never got sick because I wasn't going out mm -hmm. after a book signing to take myself out for a drink to celebrate, which meant I was in bed earlier. Mm -hmm. I wasn't eating crappy food. I was up earlier in the morning to go to the gym. I had more energy. I had more self-confidence. Like it has spilled over into every area of my life. And I think that's a really important mm -hmm. part of what you talk about when you talk about your own yes. recovery and other people who decide to become free from alcohol is that this is about way yes. more than just not putting the alcohol into your belly. It's just a fraction of it, you know, like, it's just like, it is one of these things that we just take as a given. And it's, it's one of those things where you just move one little piece of the puzzle, you move one little thing, and it opens up all of these different areas. We don't understand the ways that we rely on alcohol, or the way it, you know, like it's, it produces anxiety within the body, it's a depressant, it does all sorts of things. And then you like, when you remove not just the physical effects, but also like the, you know, the like the mental part of it, right? Like the not even just the preoccupation with it, but just like you move it and all of a sudden everything opens up. People are consistently asking me like, what do you do for fun without it? And I'm like, everything, everything. It's just not a factor. It's just, I don't even think about like, nothing is planned around it anymore. There's so much free space. Yeah. So much. I, I've noticed that as well is that it's just not a part of my equation at a party at an event, at a fancy dinner, on my birthday, on New Year's Eve, literally not part of the equation, just didn't even think about it yeah. and had a wonderful time. Like I've really enjoyed the space in my life that that has created um, because very often for me, even though it wasn't a problem and I never considered my drinking problematic, I would have one glass and then it would be like this little internal battle for a half an hour about whether I wanted a second one. Yeah. Even just removing that yes. has been so freeing. Yes, so if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, maybe I want to explore my relationship with alcohol. Maybe I have noticed areas in my life in which alcohol is having a negative impact, or I know darn well that there are parts of my life where alcohol is problematic. 
where can people start to explore their relationship? Yeah, I think there's a lot of resources, but I think like the first important thing to state is that the second that you're able to even have that thought, I think like you follow that up by a huge amount of applause for yourself for having the courage to be able to even say that. I think that it takes so much for people just to question something that is terrifying to question. It's a big deal that you're even willing to like just acknowledge something feels off or that something could be better or something could be more. And then I think from there, it's taking the pressure off yourself of it having to mean anything or to go anywhere specifically. And you've done that really, really well. You're just like, I'm on a path to exploration. Because a lot of people think the second that they say, huh, this doesn't feel right, or huh, I wonder that then it means they have to like never drink again. Um, And so I think it's just leaving it open-ended and not like putting any like goal on it, right? It's like just like the goal is just to like see what what unfolds and to keep showing up for yourself through the process. I think that there are a number of different places to go. I love Annie Grace's work. I think uh, her work, This Naked Mind, and it just is great. It's revelatory. You take it day by day. You can practice for 30 days not drinking and you can also just like read along with what she's doing. I think our school is a good place to start <laughs> Tempest Sobriety School. Um, my website has a ton of resources. Uh, you can go to hipsobriety.com and check it out or the temper. Um, but for the most part, I mean, there, like if you, if you open yourself up to the idea, if you open yourself up to the exploration, you're going to be led to like exactly the right resources. And the main thing, again, I come back to is that there's just got to be this like pride and empowerment around I'm doing something really hard by looking at something most people in society aren't willing to look at. I love that. I just shared on Instagram about my fitness journey that I no longer have goals that are about the destination and I don't have expectations about the destination. My goal is just to show up for myself day after day after day. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And I think it's brilliant. I feel like if I were to ask you how you feel about doing the whole 30 as a way to evaluate your relationship with alcohol, that you might have mixed feelings about it. What do you think? Oh my God. Well, I think that's a really great question. And I, one of my really great friends, Tammy Salas, um, she, she stopped drinking because her doctor put her on an elimination diet. And so I think that you have to really consider one, that there is a way in and it can look like anything. I think it absolutely could be a route. I think like there's just like these great, these, these guideposts we have to kind of mind in this which is that I tried to detox my way out of a drinking problem for years and years, and it was it never worked. You made a good point in some of the articles you wrote surrounding that conversation, which is whatever your way in, take that way in. You found a way in by deciding that it was for your mental health and your mental health disorder. If you feel like a Whole30 is going to be your way in, take it. But if the idea of a Whole30 feels overwhelming, because not only do you have to give up alcohol for 30 days, you've got to give up all this other stuff. And it's like this whole big, stressful thing, then that's not your way, right? right? Let's not like try to shove your way into something that's going to cause more stress than it's going to relieve. I really like what you said about how there's no one right reason. And I think the other piece of this too, is that a lot, oftentimes like putting somebody that's dependent on a substance through a program that asks for immediate abstinence without giving them support is also like one of these things that can, you know, make it worse, right? Like if you, if you try and do whole 30 and you can only make it a couple of days, it could be, you know, great place to, <laughs> to explore some things that could also be something that makes you feel, you know, even worse about yourself. There's a really great post by um, Laura McCowan called The Tipping Point 
Um, she has a windy way to getting sober. It's just, it, you know, oftentimes when we're going through like a path of, of trying to like change something or, or trying to observe something, we like, think it should be just this like, you know, like this perfect path of just staying the course, not falling off in it, you know, and, and that if we mess up, that it's like some indication of something. And I think where her post really serves as is showing that, you know, making change is not linear, it's messy, and there's ups and downs and all sorts of ways through to, to you know, where we're going. Yeah. I think the points that you just made that it's really awareness is the first step and often the hardest. So if you're even at that point, all the applause for you, that there is no one right way that recovery looks different for every single person and that you can and should take your own context and your own goals into account when you're seeking this recovery mm-hmm. and that it's not going to be linear. That right. of course, much like any change or any exploration, it's going to be up and down and two steps forward and three steps back. But the point is you keep showing up. That's right. That's right. That's like a path of success in any endeavor, right? It really is. So at the end of every episode, I ask, what is one piece of advice you could share with someone out there who is ready to do the thing? Oh, that you have it in you. We often like have these like these little whispers within us. And we also then look at at something that's pretty impossible and I just want to remind you, you have every, you have the world in you. You can do whatever, whatever it is. You just listen to that voice and you just take the next step. That's it. I love that. Holly, tell us about what's coming up for you. Well, we've been hip sobriety for years and now we're rebranding to Tempest. And our new Tempest Sobriety School uh, opens up June 13th. And you can find out about that at jointempest.com. And then I am writing a book and it comes out January 2020 and it's called Quit Like a Woman, which is really exciting. Um, But the book is is essentially about, well, all the things that we discussed, kind of how we got to where we are, why drinking is showing up the way it is, why it's killing more women at a faster rate, um, what keeps us stuck, what happens when we try and use traditional recovery paradigms and how we can really meet our needs. And so it's, yeah, I'm excited about it. I am too. I am too. I was actually kicking around like title ideas for your book a long time ago with my agent. She was like, oh, it's got a new book and they're thinking about calling it this or this. And I love where it ended up. Where can people get in touch with you, Holly? Where can people learn more about you? Well, my personal Instagram is at Holly. And H-O-L-O-Y. And then um, you can also, my old blogs are at www.hips, I don't know why I say W, but hipsobriety.com. And then you can find out more about our programs at jointempest.com or on Instagram. Um, you can follow at jointempest. Fantastic. And I'll make sure to include all of the stuff that we talked about, the references uh, in the show notes for this podcast. Holly, thank you so So much for talking to me about this. I'm so happy to finally have this conversation with you. I know. I know. It's been a long time in coming. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Before we close this episode out, I want to tell you about a very special guest I'll have on next week. Chris Gillibo hosts the Side Hustle School podcast, and he's part of my pod squad. He's also part of Gretchen Rubin's Onward Project. He has a new book coming out Tuesday, June 4th called 100 Side Hustles, Unexpected Ideas for Making Extra Money Without Quitting Your Day Job. He'll be on Do The Thing next week talking about side hustles, everything he's learned from the hundreds of interviews he's done over the past few years, how to take your passion project and turn it into a reality, and we'll explore what's been missing in your side hustle efforts. So join us next Tuesday on Do The Thing with Chris Gillibo. Thanks for joining me today on Do The Thing. 
You can continue the conversation with me at Melissa underscore Hartwig on Instagram and visit Whole30.com slash podcast for today's show notes and bonus content. If you have a question for Dear Melissa or a topic idea for the show, leave me a voicemail at 321-209-1480. Do The Thing is part of the Onward Project, a family of podcasts brought together by Gretchen Rubin, all about how to make your life better. Check out the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and Happier in Hollywood. Finally, before you leave, please subscribe, leave a review, and invite your friends to do the thing. See you next week. From the Onward Project.